This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. We begin tonight with that most clever of all sleuths, the gentleman quickly identified by his novel Deerstalker Hat and Meerschaum Pipe. Yes, it's Sherlock Holmes and his old friend, Dr. Watson. In the stories written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Watson is Sherlock's friend, assistant, and sometime roommate, and the first-person narrator of most of his stories. He's described as the typical Victorian-era gentleman. Unlike the more eccentric Holmes, he's astute, although he can never match his friend's deductive skills. And in Conan Doyle's early rough plot outlines, he finally settled on John Watson. He was probably inspired by one of Doyle's colleagues, Dr. James Watson. Watson also serves the important function of being a catalyst for Holmes' mental processes. Any character who performs these functions in a mystery story has come to be known as a Watson. I almost gave credit to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as the inspiration for IBM naming their question-answering computer Watson, but not so. After a bit of sleuthing on my own, I discovered Watson was the name after IBM's first CEO, industrialist Thomas J. Watson. And with that, we move to tonight's episode, The Camberwell Poisoner. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his good friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And now it's time to keep the weekly appointment with our good friend, Dr. Watson. How are you this evening, Doctor? I never felt better, thank you, Mr. Bartell. Draw up your usual chair and make yourself comfortable. Thanks. That's it. Oh, I see you've had the old tin dispatch box out again. I suppose you've been going through your notes on tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? Yes, Mr. Bartell, and I think you'll find it as pretty a little problem as we ever encountered. The story began in 1887. A very busy year for us, my boy. It was the same year that Holmes solved the case of the Amateur Mendicant Society, who held their meetings in a luxuriously furnished vault below a furniture warehouse. Oh, I remember that story, Doctor. And uh, wasn't 87 the year you both escaped from death in the Paradol Chamber? It was indeed. You've got a very good memory, Mr. Bartell. The story I'm going to tell you tonight topped off this unusually exciting year. It was late in October, and the equinoctial gales had set in with exceptional violence. All day the wind had howled and the rain had beaten against the windows of our Baker Street lodgings. Finally, it was uh, midnight, as far as I remember. The storm grew higher and louder, and the wind in the chimney sobbed like a child. Suddenly, 
Much to our surprise, the doorbell jangled, and a few moments later, our midnight visitor stood before us. He was a man of about 45, and as he looked about him anxiously in the glare of the lamp, I could see that his face was pale and that his eyes heavy, like those of a man who was weighed down with some great anxiety. And yet when he spoke, his tone was businesslike and almost aggressive. I've come to you for advice, Mr. Holmes. That's easily obtained. And help. That is not always so easy. Now help the gentleman off with his coat, will you, Watson? Here you are, sir. Let me, let me hang it up for you. Thank you, sir. I heard of you, Mr. Holmes, from Major Prendergast. Oh, yes. He said that you could solve anything. Oh, I'm afraid he said too much. But you've never been beaten. I've been beaten four times, sir. Three times by men and once by a woman. But supposing you sit down and introduce yourself. Uh, my friend's name is Watson, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do, Doctor? My name is Lovelace, Edmund Lovelace. And what brings you to me at this hour of the night, Mr. Lovelace? I'm in terrible trouble, Mr. Holmes. You don't know anything about me, but if you'll accept my case, you can save four lives. I wouldn't say that I know nothing about you, sir. No, it's true that I know little beyond the somewhat obvious fact that, uh, well, you're single, <clears throat> that you keep a dog, but not a manservant. And that you are much preoccupied with your business, which I take to be some form of insurance. Oh, come, come, come. Oh, now, what is this? Well, I, magic? I'll wager that my friend's right, though. Isn't he, Mr. Lovelace? Perfectly. But I'll be hanged if I can see how he knows. Oh, it's a practical application of logic, sir. The briefcase that you carry might at first indicate a barrister or some other professional man. But your brusque, business-like manner counteracts that suggestion. An insurance broker who must visit clients at odd hours is the likeliest man to combine that manner with a briefcase of midnight. But uh, the wife and the manservant, uh, and the fact that I'm preoccupied with my business. Uh, your cufflinks don't match, sir. Each is from a different pair. That would suggest preoccupation, and it's a mistake that neither a wife nor a manservant would have allowed to pass. Yes, but how about the dog? Um... Oh, surely that's obvious, Watson. Well, I can't see it. I shall let you ponder on that matter while Mr. Lovelace tells us his problem. Mr. Holmes... Are you as interested in preventing a murder as in solving one? Well, naturally, I am, Mr. Lovelace. Even more so. But uh, uh, please tell me your story. I live with four cousins of mine in an old house in Camberwell. My grandfather left the house and a sizable fortune to the five of us on condition that we live together and maintain the family unity. It probably won't surprise you to know that we've grown to get pretty much on each other's nerves. Well, what happens if one of you dies, Mr. Lovelace? His share is divided among the others, Doctor. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, the wonder to me is, sir, that... Uh... Not that a murder may take place, but uh, that it has not happened long ago. Who's responsible for the administration of the estate? My cousin Gerald. He's much older than the rest of us, and he's a thoroughly unpleasant, cantankerous man. Yeah. He gets an extra share in the estate as administrator, and in consequence, he doesn't work. We feel, of course, that he lives off us, and we're continually quarrelling with him about it. Well, sounds mm. like a jolly household, I must say. There's going to be trouble, Mr. Holmes, I know it. Gerald hates us, and he's jealous of our share in the estate. You spoke of preventing murder just now. Uh, yet I can see that you've selected your cousin Gerald as the potential murderer. Am I right? Yes, you are. Mm -hmm. But don't think it's personal prejudice that makes me suspect him. I have good reason for doing so. Oh, what reason? This evening, just before dinner, I helped Gerald off with his top coat and went to hang it up for him. As I did so, I heard a strange metallic clink in one of his pockets. I slipped my hand inside it and found a hypodermic syringe and a small pile of liquid. I opened the pile and smelled it. Gentlemen... It reeked of bitter almonds. It's a cyanide, eh? Now, what did you do? I thought of destroying it, but I realized that that would put him on his guard, so I replaced it in his pocket. Of course, I warned the others, and we decided that I'd come to you. 
I had to see a most important client tonight, or I'd have been here earlier. Yes, it seems odd that you didn't come directly to Mr. Holmes as soon as you'd made the discovery, Mr. Lovelace. After all, if a potential murderer is walking about with a pocket full of cyanide, I should have thought that itself was a more important than business. Well, I, uh... Yes, I... I suppose it might seem so to you, Doctor. Now, that's the most interesting stick you carry, sir. May I examine it? Of course. Here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now I see how you deduced that Mr. Lovelace had a dog, Holmes. Uh, the marks of the dog's teeth on the stick. Yes, my dear Watson, but these marks under scrutiny give us even more specific information. He's a large dog. You had him for some years, Mr. Lovelace, and he's now old and feeble. Well, you're perfectly right, but I'll be hanged if I can see how you can tell that from looking at a walking stick. <laughs> this stick is covered with teeth marks, therefore it has been carried many times by the dog. Now it's uh, a heavy stick, so only a large dog could have carried it. And the teeth marks also indicate a large jaw. The older marks are deep sunk. Look here. The fresh ones, where the wood has not yet darkened, are shallow. Yes, it's obvious that the jaws are losing their strength. That's very clever of you, Mr. Holmes, but... I don't see what it has to do with the case in hand. Oh, neither do I, Holmes, I must confess. No, surely it tells us that your story, Mr. Lovelace, may bear a less terrifying implication than you think. On the other hand, its implication may be even more terrifying. Oh, it's late at night, I feel that any further delay in this matter would be extremely dangerous. I suggest that we get a cab and come to your house in Camberwell at once. Randolph, I'm glad you're still up. I was able to persuade Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson to come back with me. Gentlemen, this is my cousin, Alice Harley. How do you do? How do you do, Miss Harley? How do you do? And my cousin, Randolph Lovelace. How do you do? How do you do, sir? How do you do, Mr. Lovelace? I've told him about the whole business, Randolph, so we can all speak perfectly freely. Let's begin by sitting down, shall we? Randolph and I had just finished a little cold supper. We've been to the theatre tonight. Well, Mr. Holmes, I... I suppose Edmund told you about finding the hypodermic syringe. And the cyanide in Gerald's coat pocket. Yes, indeed. May I ask where your cousin, uh, Gerald Lovelace, is now? We left the house at seven, but I imagine Gerald went upstairs at eight, as usual. Didn't he, Edmund? On the stroke of eight, Alice. He's very fixed in his habits, Mr. Holmes. He goes up to his room every night at eight. There he reads or works on his accounts and eventually goes to bed any time between ten and one. But he might still be up. I should like to speak to him a little later. In the meanwhile, may I ask you two young people, tell me quite honestly your feelings about your cousin, Gerald? And you might as well be frank. I've kept nothing back. All right. Randolph and I hate him. First of all, we're sure he's jealous of our shares in the estate, and and then we... Alice and I want to get married, Mr. Holmes, and Gerald won't hear of it. But you're your cousins, aren't you? Only second cousins, Dr. Watson. Gerald is dreadfully conventional. He's threatened us that if we do get married, he'll go to court and try to have our shares in the estate annulled. And from the way the will is worded, I wouldn't be surprised if he could do it. So you can see why we have no great love for him and why we're afraid of him. He sounds an extremely unpleasant person to me. You, you mentioned there were five cousins in the house. The three of you are here. Mr. Gerald Lovelace is upstairs. Who and uh, where is the fifth cousin? The fifth cousin is my brother, Gilly. He's something of a tragedy, I'm afraid. You see, Gilly's 20, but he he never developed mentally beyond the, the age of eight. He had a bad fall in the hunting field when he was a kid. He's been like this ever since. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, sir. But he's the dearest, most gentle boy you've ever met. And, incidentally, the one person in this house who doesn't hate Gerald. The poor fellow doesn't understand the conditions of the will, I suppose. No, but if he did, I don't think it'd make any difference. I swear that Gilly loves every living thing, especially Gladstone. Gladstone is the name of his dog. His dog? 
Yes. The dog may be the key to this whole matter. Dog? What makes you say that, Holmes? When a man brings a quick and painless poison home to a household containing an old and feeble dog, it's more than possible that he has obtained that poison quite legitimately to give the dog a merciful death. To kill Gladstone? Oh, no! After all, Alice, dear, he is old and almost blind But, now. Mr. Holmes, if you think Gerald brought home the poison to put Gladstone out of the way, well, and I admit it sounds perfectly logical, what made you decide to come here tonight? Because I dare not even guess what you may have done by intruding the thought of murder in this situation. Uh, where is your brother, Gilly? In his room upstairs, asleep. I wonder if we might go up to him. I should like to talk to him, if you don't mind. And after that, I... I want a few words with your cousin, Gerald Lovelace. He's asleep, Mr. Helms. Yes, with with a dog in his arm. Mm. I'm afraid we'll have to waken him. Gilly? Gilly? It's all right, Gladstone. We're not going to hurt him. Gilly? Hmm? Who, who, who is it? Oh, hello, Alice. Who, who are these men? They've come to take Gladstone away. Oh, no, Gilly, we, we haven't. Well, of course not, Gilly. We've just come to admire him. Your brother's been telling us what a fine dog he is. Oh, that's different. He, isn't he beautiful? I, I just had such a wonderful dream about him. Oh, such a wonderful dream. What was it, Gilly? Hmm? Well, he, he, he was all young again. Just a puppy. He, he was chasing a rabbit across a cliff top. And, and, and I was running with him. Oh, Glaston looked so beautiful. Didn't you, old boy? <laughs> of course you did. And, and you know, the rabbit went down a hole and, and Gladstone went down after him. And I went down after Gladstone. And, and we all had tea with the rabbits. Oh, it was so funny. They all had little green hats on. Hats with, with feathers. I wanted Gladstone to try one on, but he wouldn't. <laughs> so sleepy. Come on, Gladstone. Let's go back to the tea party. Okay. This world may be a great deal more pleasant than ours, Watson. That's what I'd like to think, Mr. Holmes. Now I'd like to have a few words with your cousin, Gerald. His room's at the end of this corridor. I'm afraid Gilly wasn't much help to you, Mr. Holmes. On the contrary, young lady. He told me exactly what I wanted to know. Here we are. This is Gerald's room. There's no light under the door. He must have gone to sleep. I'm afraid we must waken him, too. A heavy sleeper. But he isn't. He's a remarkably light one. Come on, let's go in. Strike a match, will you, old fellow? Uh, sure. The gas mantle's at the head of his bed, Dr. Watson. Yeah. Well, he's lying on the outside of his bed. He must be... There's blood on the pillow. Great Scott Holmes. The back of his skull smashed in. He's been murdered. <gasps> oh, no! Horrible! Yes, Watson, but not by the blows on his head. Look here on the table by his bed. Hypodermic syringe and a broken file. Yes, a broken file. Reeking of bitter almonds. Poor devil. Well, I won't pretend I like him. But what a ghastly way to die. All they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. So the scriptures say, Mr. Lovelace. The very suspicion of the killing has brought murder to pass. Well, it's too late to prevent it. Our job now is to find the killer and see that he's brought to justice. <laughs> 
Well, Dr. Watson, so you found Gerald Lovelace dead in one of the bedrooms of the house in Camberwell. Uh, what did you do? Send for the police? Not at once, Mr. Bartell. Sherlock Holmes persuaded the remainder of the household to give him the opportunity of examining the scene of the crime carefully before the police were sent for. And so, a few minutes before one o'clock that October night, Holmes and I stood alone in the room of death. Yes, a little higher, will you, old chap? Uh, you know, Holmes, I think you should have sent for the police right away. In a case like this, Watson, I prefer to be my own police. And I have spun the web... They may take the flies, but not before. What are the results of your medical examination, old chap? Well, it's exactly as you reconstructed it, Holmes. He was first beaten on the head with that poker lying on the floor. Then he had the full file of cyanide injected into his left wrist. Can you estimate the time of death at all accurately? No, this room's confoundedly hot. He might have died any time from one to five hours ago. Yes. It's now one o'clock, and we know that he was alive at eight. Mr. Edmund Lovelace... Saw him leave for his room at that hour. Yes, if he was telling the truth. One thing we do know for a fact is that this man was murdered at the exact moment he was going to bed. He's wearing his nightgown and nightcap, but his bed has not been slept in. Well, isn't it possible the murderer might have killed him shortly after eight and then dressed him in his night clothes to confuse us? No, my dear chap. You will notice that the hypodermic needle passed through the sleeve of his nightshirt here. Also, the nightcap is crushed and bloodstained from the blows of the poker. No, Gerald Lovelace had prepared for bed. Yes, with a glass of water on the night table and the, the prayer book and the watch. Yes, signs of a prosperous and meticulous man. Mm -hmm. Very fine gold watch and in excellent condition. Aha. Uh -huh. There's the answer, Watson. What do you mean, there's the answer, Watson? I just wound this watch one turn and then it was fully wound. That provides us with a time schedule for our murder. Come on. We'll send a servant for the police, and while they're on the way, if you'll call everyone together, I should like to put a few more questions to this family. Before the police arrive, I should like to hear your statements again very carefully, if you don't mind. Mr. Edmund Lovelace... What were your exact movements tonight? I left here shortly before ten. From ten o'clock until the time I came to Baker Street, I was with my client. His name and address, please. Derek Waterlow, 39, Onslow Square, South Kensington. Thank you. Make a note of these, will you, Watson? All right, you are home. You, Miss Harley, and you, Mr. Randolph Lovelace, went to the theatre together. Can any independent witness testify as to your movements? Well, yes, Mr. Holmes. We went with friends, the Grant Moresby's. They live at the Clarendon Hotel off Charing Cross. What time did you leave this house? Well, it, it was about a quarter to eight, wasn't it, Alice? Yes. And after the play, we went to the Café Royale for a little refreshment with our friends and then came back here. I see. And what time did you arrive back at this house? Just a few minutes before midnight. I remember the grandfather clock in the hall striking just as we went into the drawing room. And your brother Gilly, sir. I hate to waken him again. Have you any idea of his movements tonight? Well, he never goes out after dark, Mr. Holmes. Mm -hmm. But I spoke to the cook as we came in tonight. She says that he played cards with her until just after ten o'clock. He was fast asleep when I looked in on him shortly after midnight. Thank you. You've made a note of all these facts, Watson? Yes, Holmes. I got them all down. Good. Then let's be on our way to Baker Street. But the police, Mr. Holmes, they're on their way. I know. Uh, uh, please give them my regards, will you? Apologize for my informality and tell them that I shall have the answer to this matter probably in a little over 24 hours. <laughs>
Holmes, here it is well after midnight. You haven't done a thing on the Camberwell case. No, but you have, old chap. You've checked on all the time alibis and found them valid. I'm much obliged to you. Well, since Petra Lestrade was here tonight, you know, and he made some pretty caustic remarks, I can tell you. Oh, didn't you inform him that I'll uh, have the answer to the problem before many hours have passed? Uh, I did, but you know, Lestrade, he, he wanted action. <laughs> he shall have it. Is the watch still running? Yes, another thing. What will Lestrade say when he finds that you took the dead man's watch? I have no idea. Oh, why did you take it anywhere? You sound sleepy, old chap. I'm confoundedly sleepy. Well, why don't you go to bed? What are you going to do? Continue my vigil with my pipe and the watch of a dead man. Watson, Watson, wake up. Uh, what time is it? Five o'clock in the morning. Good Lord, what are you doing up at this hour? The watch has just stopped. I'm about to rewind it. What are you rewinding it for, Holmes? You waited over 24 hours for it to unwind. When I know how many turns it takes to wind it fully, I shall have the answer to the whole business. Ten. Eleven. You're being confoundedly mysterious, as usual. Fourteen. Fourteen turns, and the watch is fully wound. Get your clothes on, old chap. Where are we going on this hour? To the house in Camberwell. Now I know who murdered Gerald Lovelace. Edmund Lovelace, I'm glad you let us in. Please take us up to your young cousin's room at once. Really? What do you want with him? I'll explain in a moment. Please take us up to him. Of course, but what brings you here at this hour of the morning? Mr. Holmes knows who murdered your cousin. I'm glad to hear it. It's more than the police seem to know. They were here half the night cross-examining us. Here we are. I don't think we'll bother to knock. Billy. Billy? I'm awake. We heard you coming up the stairs, didn't we, Gladstone? It's the same man again. You're not going to take Gladstone away, are you? Please don't take him oh, away. Don't worry, Gilly. We're not going to touch him. Oh. It's all right, then. Oh, Gilly. Yes? You really love that dog, don't you? Of course I do. More than anything or, or anybody. I believe you'd even kill a man who tried to hurt Gladstone, wouldn't you? Oh, yes, sir. I would. Gilly! No. Great shot. Gilly, I don't think you'd really kill a man. I don't think you could. <laughs> Couldn't I, though? How would you kill him? I'd hit him first. I'd take a poker and hit him on the head so he couldn't fight back. And then I'd take the nasty needle he told me he was going to stick in Gladstone and, and, and I'd fill it full of that water he showed me and I'd stick it in him. That's what I'd do. Then he'd be dead. And, and he couldn't hurt my Glaston anymore. Not ever. <laughs> Let's leave him, shall we? Goodbye, Gilly. Pleasant dreams. Goodbye, sir. Good old Gladstone. You satisfied, sir? Yes. Poor Gilly. There's no doubt about it, of course. No, can there be no one who described the murder to him, and yet he's just given a... An exact description of its method. Well, well, uh, what'll happen to him? They, they won't try him. No, 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 no. A little pressure in the right places and he'll be released to a private nursing home. I'll do everything I can, Mr. Lovelace. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. Thank you very much.
Well, Holmes, now that we're back in Baker Street and the whole depressing case is finished with, perhaps you'll tell me how you knew that Gilead committed the murder. Well, consider the uh, time schedules, old fellow. You checked the alibis of the other cousins and found them satisfactory. That meant that um, Alice Harley and uh, Randolph Lovelace could have committed the crime only at midnight. Edmund, only before ten. Gilly, only around eleven. You said that the... uh, Time of death could have been at any of those hours. Yes, I did. So how did you pin it down to uh, to eleven? The watch gave me the specific answer. When I picked it up, I unthink- unthinkingly wound it. Made one turn and was then fully wound. Now, when does a methodical, precise man like Gerald Lovelace wind his watch? Just he's going to bed. Exactly, old fellow. So that it was obvious that he was killed precisely one watch stem turn before I wound his watch. Now I'm beginning to see daylight, Holmes. So you let the watch run down. That's what I did. It took uh, 28 hours, from 1 o'clock the night before last until 5 this morning. Now, how many turns did it take to rewind it? 14, wasn't it? That's right. Therefore, one turn of the watch stem equaled two hours, proving that Gerald Lovelace had been murdered two hours before 1 o'clock at 11 p.m. When Gilly was the only one who could have done it. You know, Holmes, I still find it hard to believe that boy was capable of such a ghastly crime. He seems so gentle. Oh, years, years. Except when his beloved dog's life was at stake, probably out of some mistaken notion of kindness, Gerald Lovelace warned the boy of his intentions regarding the dog. Oh, it's a sad business, Watson, a sad business. I hate to think of that boy spending the rest of his life in a mental home. I have one prayer for his future. What's that, Holm? <clears throat> the dog Gladstone can't live very long. I pray that Gilly does not long outlive him. Doctor, that was a remarkable bit of deduction on the part of Mr. Holmes. Yes, extremely clever, wasn't it? Of course, if I may say so, I was of some small help myself. Small help? Why, Doctor, you practically solved the case by yourself. Oh, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. But, Doctor, you did check all the alibis, didn't you? Yes, I checked where each suspect was at various times. Yes, you checked time. And what's more important than time? Well, Why, uh, Dr. Time is even vitally important when it comes to wine. I was wondering how you were going to bring that in. And one thing we do know, Petri took time to bring you good wine. So nobody can miss with Petri wine. It's just got to be good. You know, you can't be in the wine business as long as the Petri family without really learning all about the fine art of making wine. And don't forget, the Petri family has been making fine wine since way back in the 1800s. So, naturally, they've been able to hand on down from father to son, from father to son, the result of generations of experience at turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. No matter what type of wine you prefer, you'll like it more if it's a Petri wine, because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes story do you plan to tell us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a most unusual adventure that Holmes and I had when we were attending a performance at the Opera House in Rome. It concerns a famous singer who lost her voice, an understudy who was nearly lynched, and a murder that baffled the police. I call it the adventure of the terrifying cat. Well, that's a story we've got to hear. Thank you, Mr. Bartell. And before you go, I want to talk to our friends about their war bonds. You know, during the war, the best investment we could find was the United States war bond. And for my money, they're still a great investment. 
They're called United States Savings Bonds now, and only the name is changed. Savings Bonds are sold in the same denominations and give you all the same advantages. And you can buy Savings Bonds at the same places at your bank or your post office or through the payroll savings plan. So invest all you can in United States Savings Bonds, because you cannot find a better or a safer investment. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Five Orange Pips. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Stay tuned for Jack Benny next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for the Jack Benny Show.
The reason we're here is because three days ago, we shut the house up and had it fumigated on account of the pests. We got rid of them, all except your Uncle Lou and Cousin Willie. Well, it's about time. We really your don't... Your mother wasn't, didn't start out very funny, incidentally. Go ahead. <laughs> we really don't mind Willie, as he's very little bothered. He spends all his time down in the basement with his printing press. He has to work night and day because his biggest, biggest competitor is the United States government. Your mother writes them all right. You just can't read them. <laughs> Blaming the mother. <laughs> Go ahead, Mary. I'm sorry. Oh, there's more. Oh, well. <laughs> anyway, Mary dear, I kind of like Willie because he's so sweet and thoughtful. Every Mother's Day, he gives me a ten dollar bill with my picture on it. Oh, I guess I was right in the first place. <laughs> now for a paragraph or two about your sister Babe. Ah, good. This is the part I like. <laughs> Since the warm weather is here, your sister Babe got herself one of those new French bathing suits. She tried it on yesterday, and I haven't seen so much of Babe since the doctor said it's a girl. <laughs> However, she's very happy with the suit. Next month, she's entering a swimming contest. A contest? Yeah, I didn't even know that she could swim. Oh, sure, Jack. Babe's a regular mermaid. Well, I've noticed the resemblance, except the, the wrong half looks like a fish. <laughs> Funnier than your mother today. <laughs> Continue with the letter, Mary. Okay. Uh, Mary, dear, you'll be happy to know that Babe is also taking dancing lessons from Arthur Murray. Well. <laughs> <laughs> he got a swell deal, too. He teaches her dancing and she fixes his plumbing. I knew she could do it. You know, Mary, your mother writes some of the funniest letters, though, I've ever heard. Ah, uh, she certainly does, Mary. They're loaded with laughs. Yeah, there, scream. Oh, hello, Dennis. When did you come in? When they found out Mary's sister Babe was a girl. <laughs> oh, then you missed the start of the letter. Would you like me to read it to you? Oh, no. I'll hear it on tonight's rebroadcast. Oh, yes, yes. By the way, Dennis, you were off the program last week. Uh, was anything wrong? Oh, no, Mary. Mr. Benny gave me a week off so I could go away for a little vacation. I sure enjoyed myself. I went fishing on Lake Mead. Well, I was the fishing, Dennis. Oh, it was wonderful. Boy, was I lucky. What'd you catch? Four trout, three perch, five bass, and a high-button shoe. A high-button shoe? Yeah, but it was too small, so I had to throw it back. <laughs> oh, fine. He bought a shoe. You ought to see the hip boot that got away. <laughs> oh, quiet. I wish I could get away and do a little fishing. That's one of my favorite sports. Fishing? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a thrill it is to hook a silvery rainbow trout. One of nature's loveliest creations. What a sight as it breaks the water in a shimmering shower of glistening drops and the sunlight reflecting on its iridescent beauty. Look how he describes the fish. Me, he can't see anything nice. <laughs> Jack, what are you talking about? Nothing, nothing. Say, Dennis, how long were you at Lake Mead? Oh, we were there for a whole week, and I spent all my time out on the boat. A whole week on a boat? Avast there, you landlubber. Larboard the starboard and drop the anchor. Look, Dennis. Give him the timbers a man the pumps and we'll all drown like rats. Dennis, that's enough. Ahoy, me hearty, batting the barking and pooping down the poop deck. <laughs> batting the barking? What happened to Durston and Oswald? Now, Dennis. 
Honor, that's enough. Do you hear? Throw that talk, Mr. Christian, or I'll swing you from the highest yard arm of the British fleet. Oh. <laughs> Mary, see what you can do with him, will you? Dennis, Jack is right. Why don't you Let just... the men mutiny my last, and don't worry. The ship may be rocking and pitching, but I'll sail it through this hurricane or... 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 Dennis, what's the matter? I'm seasick. <laughs> Good, good. Now, look, Popeye, it's time for your song. What are you going to sing? Careless hands. Okay, let's have it. Aye, aye, sir. tonight, we are going to do our version of that Warner Brothers picture, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And I better cast it right now. I, of course, will play the leading role. Of, of course. course. <laughs> Listen, I'll give a performance that'll... Okay, sing. folks, you're all in clover, because Harris is here and this lull is over. <laughs> Well, 
Now, Phil, why do you always have to come in here and ask the audience to applaud? Well, I ain't going to get no laughs with the jokes you give me, and I want to hear some kind of noise. <laughs> well, you got no right to complain about the jokes. You get as many laughs on this program as I do. That's what I mean. I want to hear some kind of noise. Applaud me, folks. Phil! <laughs> All right. I'll read the stuff that's written here, but I thought a little ad libbing would liven things. Hi, you live. <laughs> Hello, Phil. How are Alice and the children? Oh, fine, Liv, fine. Just left them. You know, this being the first day of May, I drove them over to the park for a big May party. A May party? Yeah, you should have seen all them kids. They looked so cute as they danced around me. Dance around you. Didn't they have a maypole? Yeah, but I was prettier. <laughs> Let me sit down with you, Dennis. I'm seasick, too. <laughs> well, you should have seen Mary's letter from her mother. Nice, huh? Yeah, she wrote the letter stuttering. She wrote it that way. <laughs> but look at Phil. You know, between you and Remley, I've never Wait seen... Wait a minute, you... Jackson. Hold it, Dad. What? Just a minute, bud. I don't care what you say about me, but don't pick on Remley. Phil, Phil, calm down. Yeah, what's wrong? Well, may as well tell you why I've always tried to protect Remley. Yeah. <laughs> what? Well, you see, well, I promised Frankie's poor old mother that I'd always look after him. Oh, when was that? When she threw him out of the house. <laughs> and I don't like to brag, Jackson, but I've taken pretty good care of Frankie during all these years. Uh, by the way, Phil, it's none of my business, but how much do you pay Frankie? Well, I I don't give him no regular salary. I, uh, I just take care of his needs, like room, board, and bail. <laughs> oh, fine. Say, Jackson, before I go, there was something I wanted to ask you. Oh, yeah, look, last week you told me you were going to buy a new car. What kind did you get? I didn't get any, Phil, but I may get a new one this summer. Well, look, be sure you get one of them new models that comes equipped with the Dynaflex Superflowing Unijet Turbo Vasculator, which is synchro-meshed with the multi-coil, hydro-tension, duo-vacuum, dyne-no-matter. <laughs> they come in the modern and fodder model. <laughs> well, That last word, listen, that was amazing. I mean, how'd you ever say that? A Harvard man fixes my teeth. <laughs> well, I gotta be leaving. So long, kids. So long, Phil. Hey, folks, I'm leaving. You wanna throw just one more on me? Phil, get out of here! <laughs> oh, boy, what a character. You know, Jack, Phil is conceited. Conceited? Mary, you should have heard the things he told me yesterday while I was giving him a Tony. <laughs> <laughs> now, where were we? Well, you were casting the play we're going to do. Oh, yes, the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Now, Don, you're going to be my partner when we go hunting for gold. And, Dennis, you're going to be the old prospector, the part that was played by Walter Houston. And let's see, uh, where's Mel Blank? Here I am, Jack. Folks, it's Mel Blank. Give him a big hand. <laughs> We're all going to be in the play. Why don't you just give him applause? Well, Mary, I have to. It's in his contract. <laughs> you mean you give money and applause, too? No money, just applause. 
amazing, you know, how much you can save when you got a lot of hams working for you. <laughs> now, Matt, you're going to be the leader of the Mexican bandits, and oh, yes, Dennis, besides being the old prospector, you'll come in later as one of the bandits. Gee, two parts. It's hard to believe I can sing, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, for our version of Warner Brothers' thrilling adventure story, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. As our scene opens, it's a hot, humid, sultry day, and a lonely, hungry, penniless American is roaming the streets of Tampico, Mexico. See what I can do in this saloon. See, this place is crowded. Hey, bartender. Bartender. Hey, si, senor. What will you have? Give me three fingers. Hey, three fingers of what? Just three fingers. I'm hungry. <laughs> I mean, three fingers of anything. If I don't get something to eat pretty soon, I'll go crazy. Hi, big boy. Huh? Good to see an American down here, even though you do need a shave and your clothes are torn. You look like a derelict. What's the matter? It's a long story. I used to be a famous radio comedian. I had a big house, a swimming pool, and everything. Then all of a sudden, I'm a bum. What happened? Television. <laughs> Television? What's that? I don't know, but the wrestlers have all the good writers. <laughs> anyway, let's not talk about me. That's a girl like you doing way down here in Mexico. I work in the Tampico branch of the May Company. <laughs> they have a branch in Mexico? Yeah, I'm in the Jose Department. <laughs> That's better than your mother's letter. <laughs> well, look, sister. How about you and hey, me? Hey, Pokey. Pokey, I've been looking all over town for you. Who's your friend? That's my partner, Curtin. Sam Curtin. He and I came down here looking for gold. Yeah, gold. Every time I think of it, I go crazy. Gold! Gold! I can see it now. There it is. There it is. It's mine! It's mine! Gold! Gold! Put that back. That's my pivot tool. <laughs> You know, sister, he goes crazy every time he thinks of gold. Well, doesn't gold mean anything to you? Eh, I can take it or love it. I mean, leave it. Well, you boys are interested in looking for gold. There's an old prospect around here who knows every spot of the Sierra Madre. If you can get him to go with you, you'll strike it rich. Where does the old prospector live? Well, you can't miss it. You're right down Flamingo Road. Flamingo Road. Flamingo Road. Flamingo Road. Are you stuttering? No, but I promised Warner Brothers I'd mention it three times. <laughs> Come on, Curtin. Let's go. Well, 
curtains. This must be the house where the old prospector lives. Yeah, knock on the door. Okay. Howdy, Bob. <laughs> Hello, old-timer. My name is Humphrey Bogey. What's yours? Titus Houston. Well, we've heard that you know all about the gold and the Sierra Madre, and we thought maybe you'd come up into the mountains with us. Sorry, son, but I'm too old for that now. There was a time when I used to go up into them hills and stay for months and months at a time. Uh-huh. Then it would get me. I was only human, you know. I'd have to come back, be back in town with a load of gold, and in a couple of nights, I'd blow it all in. Women, eh? No, Kleenex. I got hay fever. <laughs> Well, look, old-timer, if you won't go with us, maybe you can tell us where we can find the gold. Sure. Here's a map of old Mexico. See? You can't go wrong. You take the main road through Tampico till you pass El Paso. After you pass El Paso, you go through El Truo and turn left at El Lefto. Well, if we turn El Rido. That's El Rongo. So, is that where the gold is? Nope. That's where you buy your burrows. Burrows? Yep. There's a place right on the corner. Madman Hernandez. <laughs> He'll sell them to us? Yep, but you'll have to carry an awful lot of water for them. Why? Hernandez wanted his burrows to look like Buicks, so he cut holes in their sides. <laughs> oh, well, we got to be getting along, old-timer. You sure you don't want to come with us? Nope, but I'll see you later. You will? Yep, I come back on page 12 as a Mexican bandit. <laughs> well, come on, Curtin. Let's go. What's the matter, Bogey? You look unhappy. Well, why shouldn't I be? We've got the map. We know where the gold is, but we can't get it because we don't have any money to buy equipment. Oh, senora, senora. Huh? In there, in the saloon, there is a telephone call for you. In there, for you. In the saloon. In there. Huh? For you. <laughs> For me? In there. Is it an important call? <laughs> See, an important call. For you. A telephone call for me. Who could it be? I'm 2,000 miles away from home. Well, I might as well find out. Come on, Curtin. Wait for me at the bar, Curtin. I'll answer the phone. Okay. Hello? Yeah, speaking. Huh? Sure I can answer that. The Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620. Thank you. Goodbye. Hey, Curtin! Curtin! What's up, Bogey? We got the burrows, the picks, the shovels, the sleeping bags, and a refrigerator. Where'd you get them? That phone call. I just won them on a quiz program. Tacos or leave it. Let's go and find that gold. All right, before we go, I want to buy drinks for the house. Okay, everybody. The drinks are on me. Come on, everybody. Up to the bar. Hey, Bogey, those four Mexicans just came in waving at you. Where? Oh, yes. Buenos dias, amigo. Come on, boys. I'll pay for it. Let's have a song. Tampico, Tampico. On the Gulf of Mexico, Tampico, Tampico, that's the place for you to go. Feeling low, feeling dead, these eight words make common sense. 
You're cheating. I think. Nine. Ten. You missed me. That's better. Bogey. Bogey, when he started shooting, why didn't you shoot back? I couldn't. He gave me a knife. Goodbye, Curtin. Gentlemen, your life, your property can be lost through fire. Don't let it happen in your home, in public places, or in the country. Be careful. Be on guard against fire. Prevent fires in your community. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes another program, and we'll be with you again next Sunday night when we... Huh? Jack. What? While you were doing the sketch, a wire came for you from Humphrey Bogart. From who? Humphrey Bogart. Not from Humphrey Bogart? <laughs> Mary, yeah. what's the matter with you today? A wire came to me from Humphrey Bogart? Yes. Well, read it to me. This wire you don't read. You twist it around your neck. Oh, <laughs> Stay tuned for the Amos and Andy Show, which follows immediately. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. I hope you're with me next week when I uncover more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.